This is Loneliness Explored, the podcast brought to you by the Campaign to End Loneliness, and I'm Paul Can. Loneliness is seen by many as one of the biggest health concerns we face, and in, in this, our last episode, we're looking at the importance of communities and ways to build lasting and meaningful links between groups and individuals. I'm joined by two people who can really help us reflect on the power of communities. Deborah Hardoon is the Head of Evidence at the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. The centre works with researchers, policymakers and practitioners to develop and share evidence on what works to improve well-being. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. And Tracy Robbins is Head of UK Delivery at the Eden Project Communities team based in Carlisle. Tracy and her team deliver initiatives that encourage public engagement and participation, including initiatives such as the Big Lunch, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that later. Hi, Tracy. Hello, Paul. Hope you're well. So let's go to the heart of the matter. What do you think community is? Community is really about what's shared. Um, it's about shared things like values and infrastructure. So as a result, when we talk about community and think about what is shared, the sort of unit of analysis can be very different. So we could be thinking about streets, for example, and place-based communities that are very um, physical and very geographical, or we could be thinking about communities of faith or of interest or online communities. Um, and, and then again, we could be thinking in terms of scale, very small, it could be a very close-knit community or it could be something much wider in terms of countries or even humanity and thinking about people in the future and how sustainable our societies are. So it's many things for many people but it's really about that shared and collective aspect of, of how we live and how we are. And when we um, launched the campaign to end loneliness 10 or 11 years ago we were I suppose using a place-based approach to thinking about community. And we talked about a, a thing called the four-leaf clover, where we have the state in its various shapes from the NHS to the parish council. And then we talked about the public places and enterprises going on in a, a community. And thirdly, we talked about the, the volunteered goodwill, the sort of organizing of goodwill and, and activity and finally, we talked about people themselves, families and, and friends and neighbours. And we sort of argued that you need to have all the parts of that uh, system in place and working well, really, to make a, an impact on loneliness. I don't know if that resonates with either of you, but that's how we saw it when we started the campaign. I'm really delighted at the way that well-being has emerged over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years as a public concern, something that governments should be interested in. And we've got clearer and clearer about measuring individual well-being. But, but Deborah, I wondered if you could say something about 
how do you measure the well-being of a community? How can you take that approach, that community-wide approach, to thinking about how uh, effective a community is in that regard? Yeah, so community is intrinsically linked to the individuals that make up said community. So having um, a good understanding of how the individuals within that community are doing is really important. So we think not only about how people are doing on average, but also how a community looks in terms of the people that are feeling left behind and the people that are really thriving and what, what the gap is between those. But it is community well-being is much more than that. So it is more than the sum of the well-being of the individuals in a place. Um, there have been a, a whole raft of measures now in the last few years that have looked at measuring community well-being outcomes. Um, some of it comes from the sort of social capital literature, which is about cohesion and belonging and about participation as well. The extent to which people get involved in voting or volunteering in their place. Um, but there's also important aspects of infrastructure and service provision and, and social infrastructure that might be different from economic infrastructure or transport infrastructure. Um, but particularly at the place-based level, these are all things that are important to make a community thrive. So it's political conditions, it's also cultural conditions and it's environmental aspects of air quality um, and it's the economic and the social lives of people within that community. So I'm interested in how we turn the individual into the community wide, you know, how we make individual acts of kindness and reaching out into how the community more generally operates or the culture around a community. We heard in the last episode from the wonderful Gillian Sandstrom, who's done a lot of work on weak ties and ways we individually can reach out with a smile or a friendly word or two. I, I wonder, Tracy, from your long experience in this area, how do you think communities can work to encourage those individual acts of kindness to be the norm, the way we do things? Well, that is a question I've been struggling with for well over decades, as you know. So um, when I worked for the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, we particularly looked at neighbourhood approaches to loneliness. And we looked at four very different communities. Um, and I think it goes back to what Deborah was saying and, and what you were saying with the clover, that actually, depending on the structure of that community, the fact that contribute to people's sense of loneliness were very different. So there's something about how you understand what that community needs. But I think the key thing which we have seen in the loneliness world is permission. So there needs to be a permission or a reason for people to come together and get involved. Now we see that um, in acts of crisis. So with snow, floods, recently with the pandemic, we see that that gives people permission, but it gives people time to get involved. So, and I think why people might need permission is because our independence has been celebrated for years and the way our communities have changed, we've been more and more into modular little boxes and that's become the norm. I'm hoping that 
COVID has changed that tide somewhat. Um, but I'm not optimistic um, because what we see in other situations where there's crisis is as that crisis dissipates, such as snow, such as um, COVID, so does that level of care and that level of connection and that humanity response. So what we constantly try and do is find different reasons for people to come together but with a positive reason so it creates positive experience in nature and shared understanding and I think those things are quite key to bringing people together and how we can make that more the sense of norm I think we tried to talk about it and we tried to share good news but good things are rarely shared and people focus it's like a magnifying glass isn't it people focus on all the negative things and if that's what people believe do you know they won't see different things so there's lots of different things to contribute to why it's not the norm but there's also a lot of people out there like myself like Deborah like yourselves that are trying to make it the norm and change that tide. And I feel we're on the brink of uh, talking about the big lunch uh, in a minute Tracy but can I just stick with the pandemic and what it is we need to do as communities to change to to maybe make it more systematic how we carry on doing those great things that we did during the lockdown period I remain very very hopeful that during the pandemic people have created those informal networks those friendships that will sustain them um after this what um is my concern is not everybody has experienced that and actually we have been sort of a lot of people have been able to work from home they've seen their communities they've been able to get involved in their communities and as we move forward they will move away from their communities again whether it's back into the workplace or time constraints now for those people who have become connected once again into their communities there's a real fear that they will then become lonely once more when people are not engaged and they're not around but also i think people will forget how important the communities that they were. So I think as people, we need to prioritise our connections and our relationships and not to forget that we need them and to continue to reach out to others. So this year, um, it's not just a big lunch, Eden Project, communities are looking at the whole month of June as a month of community. There's so much going on in that month anyway, Volunteers Week, Neighbourhood Watch, Carers, Loneliness Awareness Week, the Get Together Refugee Week. There's so much that's already there that if we can put a marker in the sand for our communities, for people to continue to connect, to celebrate what they've got, to recognise the importance of um, being in a community. I'm hoping that we'll be able to sort of raise the level significantly, but we can't give up. We can't just assume that it doesn't need working at. Any connection, any relationship needs the consistency of contact to keep going. I wanted just to dwell on this business of shared events, shared initiatives, which you're now describing. And I was very struck by the Australian Neighbour Day. Are you you're all aware of that, I know? Yes. Which is this day in the year designated to knock on your neighbour's door and invite them around for a beer and a barbie, as I recall. And how do those 
shared events, that sense of a coming together, the big lunch or whatever. How do they help, do you think, um, Tracy? I think what they do is they give people the permission. So the reason we came up with the the big lunch, which we call Thanksgiving Day for Neighbours, is to give people a reason and permission to knock on their neighbour's door. So it's not, oh, Tracy wants us all to go around for lunch. It's like Tracy saying, shall we get involved in this other thing and let's all have a reason to come together. Because it's based on a positive experience, you know, then it's not in response to a crisis. And then we also know that when people come, you've got shared memories, you've got relationships. I mean, on average, we see six million people involved in the big lunch, but 4.1 million of those people feel much less lonely after being involved. And it doesn't matter if it's the big lunch. It's just about getting your community involved and bringing them together once or twice a year so that you can sustain and continue that continuity of relationships. And then you're able to see when people are struggling. So we we know with loneliness, life transitions and all those things are key tipping points. And it's our relationships and our connections that keep us buoyed. So if people don't have that consistency of contact we won't know what tipping points they're going through and they won't be able to say you know oh you know I'm struggling with this Um, and people end up sort of stuck so I just think it's really important that we find positive reasons to keep connecting and for keep coming together. Deborah from your point of view we've learned a lot and we've experienced a lot over the last year or so what role do you have and what role does the What Work Centre have in sort of helping us remember that learning so that five and ten years' time, you know, we are kinder, better connected communities as a result? Yeah, I mean, this year has been a good and exciting time to be a researcher, if nothing else. <laughs> um, it's provided us with almost a natural experiment, so like a shock um, to our whole society that we can see a before and we can see an after. Um, so we can really start to analyse and interrogate what happened, to whom, how and why um, over this period and, and try to understand um, differences between different places and different people in response to to the shock that has, has been nationwide. Um, I think what that's meant is that we've had to embrace different forms of evidence gathering and synthesis. Um, so really look to um, much more rapid forms of evidence gathering and pay very close attention to community voices and on the ground insights um, for what's going on and rely less on maybe statistics that might be published a year after, you know, the data was collected or whatever, or, or commission very large randomized control trials or whatever. Um, so that's been a real boost, I think, to making us thinking much more plurally about how we think about evidence and what therefore we can learn from. Um, some of the examples of of the learning that's come out of this year, for example, there was a project um, beyond us and them, where there were several communities that deliberately invested in social cohesion. And now the researchers were able to test whether actually those communities that deliberately targeted social cohesion did actually fare better um, 
in the the COVID pandemic response? Um, and the answer was yes. That compared to other places where they surveyed, um, social cohesion outcomes were were better in those places that deliberately chose to. Um, emphasize the important role that um, social cohesion plays. Um, So we're learning lessons like that. And the role of our center is to collect those kind of insights, help make sense of them, and and make it very clear to policymakers and practitioners that well-being at the individual and the community level provides a really important framework for deciding what your goal is, what does success look like, um, and that there are things that you can do. There are interventions that do work that can, you know, shift the dial in how people feel and how communities are doing. I think the the kind of four leaf clover thing that you mentioned earlier, Paul, is really important there in demonstrating that there are there are agents at all these different levels that can have an impact on community level outcomes. Whether you're talking about community businesses that just need to be incentivized in the right way to contribute and see themselves as as part of a community or whether you're talking about the charity sector that really need the the kind of investments there. Um, And the charity sector have been amazing um, in many places in the response, but haven't had the same kind of support for their resources to be able to to actually learn from those lessons and and learn from them in a sustainable way that can scale up and provide the support. Um, But also, you know, local governments and local authorities as well, thinking about their role and what investments um, can be valuable, such as the the kind of social cohesion investments that I mentioned earlier. Could I raise the issue of communities and social media? Because I would like to talk about social media communities as a force for good. We know there's plenty of bad things about social media, plenty of really horrible things. But just a simple example before I ask you what you think. Every morning I turn on my phone, I go to Twitter, and there's a, a Twitter profile called Sea Window Craster, which is a fishing village in Northumberland. And every morning this guy takes photograph from exactly the same point of the sea that he can see from his room. And they're always different and they're always compelling and beautiful. And by the time I get to the phone, which is half past seven, you know, on a good day, um, there are about 200 people who have seen that. And that's a wonderful bonding thing. Very often we're completely silent. We just engage with that. But have you found that social media communities can really work in a positive way, uh, perhaps Tracy? I've seen some positive um, things around social media. If we think of it as just another way of communicating, so like my daughter is an isolated single parent and the fact that she can get online and talk to people when her children are in bed or she feels connected even when she's not is really important to her. And I think what we do when we join groups or Twitter or um, Facebook and other online entities even if it's whatsapp we choose where we want to go um um so when people think of the negative they go oh you you just live in an echo chamber because it's people like us that's true but it goes back to actually you're picking and choosing to be in a group of people of like-minded people who hopefully make you feel better you know so that is the positive thing and if we think of actually it's just another way of keeping the consistency of that conversation going, whether it's online or offline. I think the important thing with that is eventually 
it has to be rooted in the real world. So it can't replace our real life connections. It could help us build and keep them going. Um, so there's a real sweet spot, I think, of the benefits of social groups and online services. And, and what do you think about the impact of inequality, the fact that communities are often very unequal. There are particular parts of the country or particular places within cities that are really struggling. You know, we hear about left behind places uh, or even left behind people. Tracy, you've obviously observed a lot of different communities. How do you think inequality influences that? I think it can have a real impact, as can sort of diversity. So just going back to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, we worked in four neighbourhoods. Uh, one reasonably affluent, one wasn't, one was Midland, one was rural, and one was an inner city diverse area. The inner city diverse area that was classed as deprived had tripled the amount of factors that contributed to their sense of loneliness. Um, so there was not only sort of poverty, which meant they had to work longer or harder, or actually their priorities were trying to get food on the table, but there were also language barriers, so they didn't know the language that their neighbours spoke. And those things just complicated a lot of other things um, of trying to make those connections they got in the way of having sort of the freedom or the space and time to actually work on building connections outside the family so it's I think it's really challenging for some and then on the opposite side of that I, I've lived I was on benefits for nine years when I was younger and a single parent in a council estate in Leeds um, and actually it was my neighbours that kept me going because we needed each other. Do you know, so we had this fiver that would go between us when whoever needed it and we'd help each other out. And when food got scarce at the end of the week, um, you know, we'd pull what we had together. You know, so it's, it's really tricky. I mean, inequality and I think media do play a bit of a role of what life should be like do you know and then people's personal experience they might feel like they're missing out but it doesn't always equate to loneliness I don't think because sometimes there is a sense of actually we need each other so we've got to get on but it's just pockets and I absolutely get what Deborah was saying about all the impacts that creates a community well-being as a whole um, but it's a bit like there's no one factor that causes loneliness you know uh, older people or younger people aren't homogenous groups and communities aren't they're as individual as we are and some people can make the most of what they've got and some people will struggle even with what they've got. That is very powerful and I was struck in the livable lives study which uh, JRF I think did about how when you looked at three areas in Glasgow, it was actually in the most deprived part of Glasgow that there was the greatest solidarity and people reaching out to each other and behaving instinctively to connect, which I think was very powerful. I'd like to turn the focus on to volunteering. Personally, I hate the word, but I love volunteering. I do a lot of it. And clearly, it's an important part of any community, the volunteered goodwill, the volunteered activity. How do we 
develop that, do you think, in communities? So I wonder, Deborah, whether your work has highlighted how volunteering can flourish. Yeah, so we published a review a few months ago that looked at the benefits of volunteering for individuals' well-being. So in other words, obviously volunteering is trying to contribute something to the community or to some kind of greater good, but also it's likely to give something back and create an incentive for the individual that's doing it. Um, And the review found that there are lots of things that we can gain from volunteering. So Sometimes it's around social connections and relationships and the the kind of friends that we make as part of that volunteer community. Sometimes it's about the skills that we develop and we use in the kind of volunteering activities we're doing. Um, There's a range of things that that are quite positive for us, Um, but that's not necessarily the case. So some volunteering experiences can be run quite badly. Um, Some people might not feel that they're valued and rewarded or they might have too much pressure put on them in that volunteering position. So I think the first thing to say is that well-managed volunteer programs that value volunteers and help to maximise the well-being impacts for that individual by fostering this sense of friendship amongst the the participants and some of those other aspects that are, are positive for our well-being can can be really positive. Um, the other thing that our review found is that the people that are more likely to volunteer are those that are already quite happy and are um, from a kind of typical volunteering community. Um, People that are less likely to volunteer include people from ethnic minority backgrounds, people from lower income families and so on. And so there's clearly some barriers to volunteering for some people in some places. So I think really understanding what stops certain people from, from volunteering in certain formal, this very much looked at formal volunteering um, programs is really important too. And that kind of brings me on to my next point, which is recognising the value of some of these more informal volunteering um, activities and valuing those. So we saw with COVID, a lot of mutual aid networks spring up. And that sort of data, I guess, is not captured. You know, you're not part of a formal volunteering program where you sign up to however many hours a week, um, but you're still making a really important contribution for your um, community and working with others, you know, in your own time to do something worthwhile. So I think recognising the diversity of volunteering um, experiences and valuing those is really important. Um, But something I mentioned earlier, which is the charity sector and the civil society sector in general, who really struggled in the last year a lot of their funding streams have dried up not being able to have events or you know have the shops open or whatever um so i think there's a real challenge ahead with providing the infrastructure that's necessary for those positive volunteering experiences that i mentioned before um so that really needs to be kind of prioritized and the value of the civil society sector more broadly raised up the agenda and tracy i find it very hard to tell the difference between when a friend rings me up, as happened the other day, to say, I need to get to the hospital. And I just take that friend, I drive along. And the fact that that friend could have phoned up our good neighbourhood scheme that we have in the village, and I would have picked it up, and uh, said, I need to get to the hospital for an urgent appointment. Is it all part of the same thing? I think um, I too struggle with the word, yet I volunteered for nine years, you know, and studied, and that's how I got onto my career. So the value of formal volunteering can be incredible if it's done well. But informal volunteering, 
I think um, for me, it's just participation. So whether you participate in an informal or in a formal way, I think that is what you're doing. You're engaging in your participating. So you and your friend, that's those informal support networks that we work really hard to um, set up so that people don't belong to us. They don't belong to the Eden Project. They are big lunch volunteers. They're people in their own community doing their own thing. I had exactly the same approach with the community researchers. We did participatory research when I did loneliness with Joseph Roundtree Foundation. They were people in their own community trained up to see what their community need. They weren't our volunteers. And I think there's a real strength in that informal approach if you want things to be community-led. But there is a equal importance in that formal volunteering role which has helped me get to where I am today and I think one of the fears I have and I don't know whether Deborah shares it is um, that people have seen this huge wave of informal volunteering come up that they now feel that they don't no longer need the charity sector and I think it goes right back to your conversation about international development or community you need someone to help facilitate those connections, be that a big lunch, be that a local church, be that a youth and community worker. You need something to help facilitate and give people permission to participate, whether informally or formally. And I think Deborah's also right. People in um, who have the capacity and the time will volunteer. Um, but the reason we have a charity and um, infrastructure is because there's a lot of places and um, where people don't have the time or capacity to volunteer, but actually the need is still great. And they might be the places where they'd have to ring you up and get a lift to the hospital because they don't have their social support network. Um, so I think that there needs to be more equality um, between informal and formal volunteering and it not seen as a hierarchy. So uh, we have to end this podcast and indeed bring the series to a close. And I can only think that the best way of doing that is to go back to the literal meaning of that word community, a social unit with a commonality, whatever that commonality is. And I can't think of a more appropriate way to capture this than by going back to the words of Joe Cox, MP, who in her maiden speech said that as she went around her constituency, she found that we have far more in common than that which divides us. And I suppose my hope would be that the more in common network of organisations that sprung up since Joe's death could become the norm. And with your encouragement, Tracy, and with your leadership, Deborah, we could make it more of the norm. That's my hope. But that's all we've got time for today. And I wanted to thank very warmly our guests, Deborah Harding and Tracy Robbins. If you want to find out more, please get in touch by going to our website, www.campaigntoendloneliness.org, or find us on Twitter at Loneliness UK. Please let's keep this community together. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.